This week on the Science of Politics, what have conservatives achieved in U.S. state governments? For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Republicans have gained a lot of electoral ground in the states while building an impressive infrastructure of conservative organizations to push policy rightward. But have they succeeded? On this special conversational edition of the podcast, I talked to Alex Hertel Fernandez of Columbia University about his recent Oxford book, State Capture. He finds that organizations of conservative legislators, advocacy groups, and think tanks jointly shifted state policy and neutered their political opponents. We also talk about my new Cambridge book, Red State Blues. I find that despite major gains in the states, Republicans did not transform the size or scope of state government or counteract liberal social trends. Where they did have influence, the results on the ground were limited. Those takes are quite different, but together the books pinpoint both the strengths and the limits of the conservative ascendancy in the states. Alex, let's start with your book, State Capture. How would you summarize the findings, and what are the biggest takeaways? Well, thanks so much for having me on, Matt. It's a real pleasure, not just because I have enjoyed listening to this podcast, but also because I've learned a lot from the work that you've done and really enjoyed reading and digging into Red State Blues and thinking about the ways in which it both complements and also takes a slightly different perspective from state capture. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So state capture really tries to nail down three different uh, types of arguments, um, answering three different questions. One of them is how conservatives have managed to construct organizations that build power within and across the states. So that's a question about building coalitions and organizations. And I focus in particular on three organizations that I call the conservative troika, the American Legislative Exchange Council, the State Policy Network, and Americans for Prosperity. And I look over the course of the past several decades at how these organizations were created and the different ways that they evolved to help conservatives build power at the state level. The second uh, strand of the argument in state capture asks what effect these organizations have had. So it looks uh, moves from the uh, inside of these organizations outwards and asks what are the concrete policy victories that they have enjoyed and why have they been more successful in some states relative to others. And then the final part of the book asks why progressives and liberals have had a more difficult time constructing cross-state networks of their own that could build left-leaning power uh, to pass liberal legislation uh, and move policy and politics in a more leftward direction. So let's talk a little bit about that middle part. Uh, what, what have been the big areas of, of successes and, and the notable failures? It's changed over time, the areas where conservatives have been most successful, uh, and that, and we can get into the reasons why it's changed over time. Part of that has to do with the ebbs and flows of electoral trends in the states, as well as the changing nature of the two parties and the ways in which the Republican Party has become much more unified in its conservative stances. But in general, looking over the course of the past several decades, I would point to the ways that these organizations have helped block or undermine important progressive initiatives. So starting most recently, I think these conservative networks have played a very important role in blocking the implementation of the uh, Affordable Care Act, the landmark health reform legislation passed under the Obama administration. This has involved both stymieing implementation of the state-by-state exchanges, but also 
even more importantly, blocking states from expanding Medicaid to cover previously uninsured poor adults, which was a major way in which the Affordable Care Act was intended to expand health insurance coverage. While a growing number of states have accepted this Medicaid expansion, there still remains over a dozen states that have refused to do so. And we've seen these conservative networks push states to reject expansion, even when citizens have voted, sometimes by very large margins, to expand Medicaid through ballot initiatives um, and similar uh, processes. So let's let's start with that one. So so how should we think about that? We have 14 states that that didn't expand Medicaid. We have quite a few that that tried to put on some sort of additional provisions to to make it less likely that that more people would would sign up for it. But but on the other hand, we have 36 states that doubled the size of their their largest state program in response to a democratic federal initiative. So is that success or failure? To some extent it depends on whether you interpret it as being a glass half full or half empty for conservatives, I would come down on the side that we need to judge conservative successes by the original benchmarks that Democrats created to judge the Affordable Care Act. And under the original framework envisioned by congressional Democrats and the Obama administration, the Affordable Care Act was supposed to implement Medicaid expansion across all the states. Uh, They created a system of carrots and sticks that they assumed uh, would lead states to to choose to expand Medicaid, even in very conservative places. And so the fact that you have over a dozen states, mostly concentrated in the South, that have refused expansion, you have a pretty important setback to the the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. And just to be clear, in in concrete terms, this encompasses several million definitionally poor Americans and disproportionately people of color who don't have access to to the health insurance plans that were envisioned by the by the framers of the Affordable Care Act. And of course, made possible by the by the Supreme Court ruling that that kind of eliminated the the opportunity to take away all Medicaid funds or to tie all Medicaid funds to, to that expansion. And this is a place where you and I both find consequences on the ground that are attributable to to that decision to expand or not. But this seems to be part of a pattern that you and I have interpreted somewhat differently. That that conservatives are seem to be better able to kind of block liberal initiatives than than to kind of succeed in in creating their own. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's a fair assessment, that this holds both at the state level and at the national level and in cross-national comparison too, that we've seen the biggest successes, especially when we think about the welfare state on the conservative side, coming from encouraging governments to fail to take action to address new social risks or to adapt social programs in ways that would expand their coverage to keep up with changing social and economic contexts. And I think you see this play out over the states as well. So the Affordable Care Act is one great example of this. Another one is, of course, the minimum wage. Because of conservative opposition at the federal level, uh, the federal government, Congress, has declined to increase the minimum wage to reflect changes in the economy, um, both in terms of the composition of the workforce um, for whom the minimum wage binds, and then also when it comes to uh, making sure that the minimum wage keeps up with inflation. As a result, states and localities have really become the main policymakers when it comes to the minimum wage. And there you've seen the conservative networks like the ones that I describe in the book being very successful in pushing state lawmakers to stymie minimum wage increases. They've done that both by preventing minimum wage legislation for from coming up for a vote and voting on that legislation, and also by using a tool called preemption. That's where state governments can set limits 
on the policies that are passed by cities and localities within particular states. And the conservative networks that I describe in state capture have been quite aggressive in using preemption to stop minimum wage increases by blue cities in red states. Uh, As I show in the book, Alec in particular helped spread the use of this preemption to well over half of the population. So over half of the population lives in a state that has passed a state law saying that cities and localities can't pass minimum wage increases that go beyond what the state has set. That effectively prevents, say, a city like Milwaukee or Madison from in Wisconsin from passing higher minimum wages. And this is another good example of, of interpretive uh, difference of the, the same trends. So on the one hand, we have you know nationwide activism toward expanding uh, the, the minimum wage, uh, including to $15 in, in some cities. We also have states uh, like, like Michigan, where they succeeded in raising the minimum wage, but only because the Republican state legislators decided they were too scared for it to go to a ballot initiative where a higher minimum wage would have been secured. And so they passed passed a uh, another minimum wage hike that wasn't as big as the one that that voters were likely to support. So on the on the one hand, you have uh, Republicans uh, succeeding in in blocking what is a clearly popular liberal initiative. On the other hand, the the trend is is for states to to move beyond the what the federal government uh, sets uh, in terms of the 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 minimum wage. Well, I guess I would clarify that by saying the trend among states that are fully democratically controlled or where it's possible for voters to directly decide on the minimum wage, the trend is one towards higher minimum wages. But in states that are fully Republican controlled and where these conservative networks are strong, you know, you're seeing movement to prevent increases in the minimum wage, even from cities where there is energy momentum mobilization like the Fight for 15 movement pushing in that direction. But I think more generally, this gets at a theoretical question about interpretation, which is to say, what's the right benchmark against which we should be judging actions by the states? And just like on the Affordable Care Act, when it comes to the minimum wage, the background is not one where uh, of neutrality. The background is one where the federal government has stepped back and said, we're not going to update this policy, putting the onus on the states to take action. And therefore, you can view the action by blue states like California and New York to increase their minimum wages as a sign of progressive policy innovation in the states. Or you can look to it as those states trying to maintain a, uh, 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 the gains that have already been made previously as a result of drift or a failure to update policies at the federal level. Yeah, and I think this is constant across a lot of different issues. Where we we also saw it in you know climate change, where uh, you know liberals need would need pretty aggressive success at the state level to actually move the needle on that policy issue. And and there have certainly been efforts uh, by Republicans, successful efforts to block that initi- those initiatives. On the other hand, if you kind of just count up what kinds of policies are passing in the states, you do see a lot of changes toward more renewable energy. So you might consider the trends liberal, but not enough to actually do anything to to solve the the problem. That's right. I think that's a fair characterization that the the benchmark against which we should be judging activity by the states is, does this meet the scale of the problem, thinking about the nation as a whole? And there, while the actions that states are taking, in particular blue states are taking, 
in adopting requirements that uh, utilities use renewable energies, for instance, or making it more cost effective for households and businesses to install solar panels um, on their houses. Those are important steps to be sure. But when we think about the scale of the policy response that's needed to move the needle on climate change, it's ultimately going to take federal action, not action uh, by uh, by blue states or states where liberals have uh have built up a strong political presence. Another uh, point that I took from you is that uh, Republicans have had the most success, or some of the most success, where they have these aligned policy goals and and political incentives. That seems to be where it's easiest to kind of get a coalition together. So things like restricting voting or or sticking with redistricting that benefits uh, Republicans. What what what's your take on that, and 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 why is it that that those are the areas where it's easiest to get the coalition together. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it gets at a key argument I make in the book, which is that the conservative organizations that I study, groups like ALEC or Americans for Prosperity or the State Policy Network, these are coalitions of conservative interests. And on some issues, these conservatives are all aligned, but on others, they're pulling in opposite directions. And as I document in the book, it took a lot of energy and effort and planning in order to construct coalitions of these interests that were durable over time, that didn't fall apart when these interests began to have disagreements. So let me just give you some concrete examples. In in Alex's early years, for instance, they were trying to knit together social conservatives who were fired up about the equal rights amendments um, that would have given women um, uh, greater civil rights, uh, access to abortion, gay marriage. But on the other hand, there were also companies participating in ALEC that really just cared about their tax burden or regulatory burden or making it harder for their competitors to enter their marketplace, for instance. Um, So how do you get those different sorts of interests on the same page and willing to come back to the negotiating table to maintain their involvement in this organization over time? Well, as I show in the book, a key step was for Alex leaders to point out the policies that would benefit the narrow material interests of some of their constituents, like business, for instance, but also build conservative power over the long run that would be good for everyone who is participating in the organization or the coalition. So what does that look like? So you mentioned changes to voting rights, voting rules, or election administration that would make it harder for progressive constituencies to vote, for instance. That would be an example of a sort of public good for the conservative movement that helps build power over the long run. And ALEC, among other organizations, was able to convince its members that these were the sort of policies that they should be prioritizing. In the book, I talk about it as uh, policy as political weapon, the idea that you can use policy not just to solve social and economic problems, but to really fundamentally change the distribution of power within states. I also give the example of tort reform. On its face, It might seem like tort reform just narrowly uh, changes the ways in which people can sue businesses for harms that they might have experienced as a customer or a worker. But when we think about it, tort reform actually weakens the trial lawyer bench in states. Those are the litigators that bring these cases against companies. And they turn out to be a really important progressive power base in the states. They donate to democratic campaigns. They lobby for progressive policies. And so if you can pass tort reform that weakens the trial lawyer bench, you can make it easier for conservatives to win future elections and pass conservative policies in a whole range of areas. Um, Things like gun rights or social conservative issues that those businesses that only care about, for instance, how easy or difficult it is to sue them, that they can all benefit from these sorts of policies. 
And of course, we see very similar trends in anti-union policies uh, with, with some of the same potential implications. On the other hand, you also see some, some liberalizing trends in, in state policy. So things like same-day voter registration, earlier voter registration, early voting, all advancing in this period in which Republicans had more kind of full control of the, of the states. So I guess how, how much are they able to, to overcome what, what they would see as kind of inherent liberalizing features of, of government to actually realign the states uh, toward their toward their agenda over the long term? Yeah, it's a great question. But I do think that there is an asymmetry in the willingness and ability of conservatives to think about policy in this way as power building, as opposed to, say, liberals. And I say that for two reasons. One is the changing federal baseline on a lot of these different policies. And again, I would point out the ways in which movements at the federal level have benefited conservatives and disadvantaged progressives. So for instance, when it comes to voting rights and election administration, we've seen a deterioration of voting rights that would benefit progressive constituencies, um, perhaps most notably Supreme Court decisions that have made it harder to check the ability of states to pass things like voter ID laws or shut down polling locations or make it harder for people to register to vote. And so that places an onus on liberal states to pass policies just to keep up with the old baseline, let alone liberalize access to the ballot box. So I think, one, the federal baseline is changing in important ways that benefit conservatives. And you could say the same thing, for instance, for union policy. Uh, the federal government um, and the Supreme Court, among others, have taken steps to make it harder for people to, uh, to join, form unions, and for unions to organize their members to participate in politics. And so it requires the states to do more simply to have the old baseline line of, of union power. The second reason why I think there's an asymmetry in the willingness of conservatives to use power building sorts of policies is that there's a real reluctance amongst progressive activists to think about policy as being anything but what you should be doing to improve the social and economic lives of, of Americans. You know, in the interviews that I talk about in the book, you know, there's a reluctance on the part of the counterweights to organizations like ALEC or the state policy network on the left um, to, to think about using policy to build up organizations or to change political participation. You know, they'll, they'll tell you our goal is to pass policies that reduce poverty or that increase health insurance coverage. We don't want to be focused on these, these broader power building issues. And I think one example of this that's quite clear that I discuss in the book is Democrats' reluctance really to pass policies that would benefit unions at the state level, um, whereas conservatives have been much more likely, as soon as they get into power, to pass policies that disadvantage unions. You just don't see that same willingness, at least until recently, amongst Democrats to make union reform a key issue as soon as they gain power. I agree. And even when they do uh, focus on these kind of electoral benefiting policies, they, they often pursue reforms. So the obvious example at the moment is that states that, that might be moving towards full democratic control are passing these redistricting reforms to uh, make it uh, a more fair process uh, so that when Democrats get in control, um, they, they may have, by their own strategy, not been able to, to kind of realign the districts to, to benefit uh, those parties so I, their own party so I think that that does show a, a difference in the in the goals of the of the party that's right there's a tendency to think about good government reform in a way that brackets power 
and doesn't think about the power implications of those reforms. So let's talk about education. We held a panel on your book at the American Political Science Association conference, and this issue came up uh, a lot. It's also the one issue where uh, Jacob Grumbach finds that uh, both uh, Republican and Democratic states uh, over the last 20 years were moving rightward, and that's uh, primarily in their uh, instigation of more charter schools and, and to some extent, uh, more vouchers. On the other hand, we've seen a big backlash uh, from the teacher protests um, where states have increased education spending and Republicans have had sort of trouble actually kind of reducing the the role of government rather than just kind of moving it uh, towards charters and vouchers. And we're now at a point of about six to seven percent of students in the U.S. attend either charter schools or uh, some type of voucher program. So so how should we evaluate that as as kind of the most successful kind of conservative move across all states, but still also kind of showing the, the potential limits of the conservative ascendancy? Yeah, I mean, I think the place I would start is the ways in which the structure of the Democratic coalition has been more favorable, at least until recently, to these sorts of education reform initiatives, thinking about charter schools or vouchers or changes to teacher evaluation that prioritize test scores, for instance, or the contribution of students to uh, of, of teachers to student learning. And here, I think the story is that there have been a number of philanthropic foundations and wealthy donors. You know, I think about the Gates Foundation or the Broad Foundation that have prioritized a bipartisan approach or even working exclusively within the Democratic Party to get Democratic politicians to really focus on, on these issues. And there's been some great scholarship from political scientists like uh, Sarah Reckow and Megan Tompkins-Stang showing the role that these donors, both individual wealthy donors, but also philanthropic foundations, and in setting an agenda within the Democratic Party coalition that's, that's favorable to, to these proposals. But I think you're right that in very recent years, you've seen a backlash from teachers in particular to both cuts in education and these moves towards charter schools or vouchers. Um, It's notable that in these red state teacher strikes, the protests weren't just against low levels of teacher compensation, low education spending, but it was also about the expansion of charter schools. That was a big issue in Arizona in particular, because Arizona has been one state where conservative networks, especially in-state conservative think tanks and and lawmakers working through the state policy network and ALEC have been quite successful in pushing the charter movement forward. But it remains to be seen how enduring those changes are going to be. This may be an issue where we see it a little differently. I think that uh, the the history you review is is absolutely uh, true, um, but it kind of points to some some problems for the conservative coalition that their kind of biggest success area across the states required help from the Obama administration and the Clinton administration and, and liberal foundations. Uh, you see the same things when it comes to criminal justice uh, reform, um, which kind of targeted uh, Republican states, but but maybe did not achieve kind of initial conservative uh, objectives or, or went toward kind of less tough on crime uh, uh, style policies. And so they need a lot of help from Democrats uh, and, and liberals to kind of move policy uh, rightward in this area of education. And 
where they didn't succeed, I, I see as, a, I guess, a more fundamental uh, conservative problem, which is that the, the size and scope of government uh, tend to grow over time. The Republicans went from controlling three states to controlling 26 states last year. And over that time period, spending in the median state doubled. And spending is still concentrated in health and education, these kind of democratic priority areas. And unlike at the federal level, where they can pass a tax cut and and put it on the credit card, um, at the state level, the consequences on the ground are often quite apparent and quite immediate, as we saw in in states like Kansas, where some of the tax cuts were were reversed, and we saw in all the other states where the teachers uh, came came to protest. So I guess to me, uh, there's a more fundamental block on on conservatives. They can can pass some of these social reforms. They can uh, try to redistribute benefits across constituencies. They can try to uh, directly hurt their political opponents. But when it comes to this project of actually kind of scaling back or, or even softening uh, the, the growth of government, uh, they, they have more of a challenge. So I agree with you if we consider the evidence that you've quite compellingly presented in your book about the overall size of state governments, looking at the amount of revenue that they spend or, or taxes that they raise, that it's been uh, relatively uh, steady and, and unchecked by the um, by the changes in state governments um, over time, including the Republican takeover of a number of states since 2010. But you know, I, I guess I come back to this question of what the right baseline for that is, because if you assume that over the past 10, 20, 30 years, there have been new social risks, new economic needs that the states need to be addressing. Shouldn't we be expecting states to expand beyond what they've been doing before to new areas of government or to compensate for the areas in which the federal government has uh, scaled back its efforts? Um, In which case, uh, the failure of of conservatives to retrench the size of government isn't a conservative loss. It's, It's rather a conservative win in that they're preventing states from acting even more aggressively to to address these new social needs and risks. Yeah, I think you see that in in an area like early childhood education, where on the one hand, inequality is increasing and is increasingly pinpointed on kind of early uh, childhood success. The research is broadly supportive of more early childhood education. And so there's been a nationwide trend toward more spending on early childhood education. On the other hand, it's nowhere near enough to remedy those uh, inequalities to give children equal chances by the time that they arrive in elementary school. And so I think liberals still still potentially see it as, as a failure. I guess what I would just add is that's also a way of seeing why conservatives might see their project as, as less successful than, than you do if they're kind of running up against this policy uh, churn towards more investment overall. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I would also point to changing workplace relationships too. the fact that so many employees are now um, either independent contractors or working for franchised or subcontracted arrangements where they're not subject to the old laws that used to protect them from excessive employer control, you know, things like the minimum wage or workplace safety conditions or overtime. Um, And so that leaves a lot of scope for the federal government and the states to take new steps in order to even just maintain the same level of protection in the workplace that workers enjoyed, say, 30 or 40 years ago. 
So let's go back to a little bit of your uh, evidence since we didn't talk as much <laughs> as much about that. So the sort of easiest evidence for people to track in your book is these ALEC model bills that are um, enacted in quite a few states and account for you know up to one or two percent of, of policies enacted in some of the period that you look at. On the other hand, that evidence shouldn't mean that there's kind of less <laughs> impact from things like think tanks where it might be harder to to kind of find their their influence and that there are downsides to cookie cutter bills that can be passed in every every uh, state. So, um, how do you see that that evidence in in the bigger picture that you present? I think that's a helpful way of framing it. That it's one piece of evidence for one type of influence by what I'm calling the troika. These three organizations: Alec the State Policy Network, and Americans for Prosperity. But I don't think it's the only way in which these organizations are trying to shape policy and politics, and not even the only way that ALEC is trying to shape policy and politics. But I do think it's a useful one. And I think it's a useful one because in American politics and politics more generally, we have a very hard time pinning down whether or not an interest group actually changed the behavior of lawmakers, because that's a really hard process to observe. How do we know that that lawmaker wouldn't have taken that particular action independent of that interest group, for instance. Um, And so in the book, I uh, engage in what I uh, describe as trying to detect policy plagiarism, cases where lawmakers took Alex model bills and copied and pasted them uh, wholesale or relatively wholesale uh, into legislation that they introduced under their own name. And the advantage to this is that it's sort of a smoking gun test for influence. We know that that lawmaker had to turn to Alec in order to introduce the, that particular legislation. And so it's a nice, um, a nice way of directly connecting public officials to to a particular interest group. And I find that lawmakers tend to be more likely to copy these bills in states where they have fewer resources to make policy on their own. And within particular states, it's often more junior lawmakers that have less experience, fewer staffers that they can rely on that are more likely to plagiarize from ALEC model bills. And that's consistent with the group's own archival records. I document how Alex specifically targeted states that didn't have these resources. They saw this as a comparative advantage that they could offer to states, that they could sell themselves as being a resource for the lawmakers who were overworked, under-resourced, understaffed, um, uh, to come up with policy ideas and to provide them not just with those ideas, but also all the research and analysis that they would need in order to pass that bill into law. But that's not the only way that ALEC is successful. I also talk about in the book how ALEC manages to knit together its activist members, its corporate members, and its lawmaker members through regular meetings that happen every year that build enduring social ties. People might join initially because they think it's uh, cool that they can get an all-expenses-paid trip to a sunny location somewhere and and hobnob with uh, corporate lobbyists and other um, think tank representatives and advocacy groups. But over time, um, they they develop ties to those organizations that lead them to rely on them over time. That's harder to detect in a quantitative, systematic fashion, but I think it's just as important. And I'd also say that ALEC also enjoys 
enjoys strong ties to legislative leaders who aren't relying on ALEC for bill ideas necessarily, but are relying on ALEC for the broader agenda that they should be setting. Um, you know, they, they may have more legislative resources than those junior lawmakers, more experience than those junior lawmakers, but they have those longstanding ties to ALEC and are, um, are returning to ALEC for the broader set of priorities that they should be focused on. And uh, as I show in a couple of case studies in the book focused on these battles over Medicaid expansion and cutbacks to union rights, ALEC is most effective when it's working hand in hand with Americans for Prosperity and the State Policy Network, with the State Policy Network think tanks coming out with research reports and testimony on behalf of those ALEC bills, and then Americans for Prosperity marshalling grassroots activists who head to that lawmaker's open hours in the state capitol, call up that lawmaker, um, stage protests and rallies in order to push them into promoting the bills that ALEC comes up with. So this is related to a trend that you uh, brought up with me via email, the overall kind of nationalization of our politics. And of course, we do have evidence that elections are nationalized, that even in state legislative elections, people's votes are increasingly determined by whether they like the president or not, um, rather than what they like coming out of the state legislature. And you've documented um, some some nationalization of, of Republican priorities and of kind of uh, legislating um, across states. Um, but on the other hand, I guess conservatives would see themselves up against uh, a a large uh, state uh, bureaucracy and state interest group community um, that that likes things as they are. Um, And so just one point of comparison that that we've we've talked about is that uh, Mary Kroger has um, tracked where you can uh, the uh, bills introduced by state agencies. And she finds that uh, overwhelmingly uh, they would expand the power of, of state agencies and uh, that they they pass and account for, you know, up to 10 percent of, of the bills passed in in some of those legislatures. So um, from a conservative point of view, they would say it's not just that they have organizations that are nationalized and they're up against these nationalized uh, liberal organizations, but that sort of in the normal course of governance without nationalizing uh, disputes, they face uh, a lot of just incentives for uh, state government to to expand in size and scope over, over time. So so to what extent have they succeeded in, in nationalizing uh, the, the debate and to what extent is still a lot of state policy specific to states and therefore kind of governed more by the local interest groups than the national competition between liberals and conservatives. I actually think that the organizations that I study in state capture, the Troika, are both contributing to nationalization and benefiting from nationalization. So let me start by talking about how they benefit from nationalization. So you mentioned the uh, great research by uh, Dan Hopkins and others who point out the ways that political behavior is increasingly nationalized. So my vote for a state lawmaker or a governor is increasingly driven by my vote for the president, for members of Congress. And I'm thinking about those national issues as I'm casting a ballot for state elections. Why does that matter for the Troika? Well, it turns out that much of what ALEC, Americans for Prosperity, and the State Policy Network are promoting are very unpopular with the general public. Um, so I, in the book, I go through uh, several areas where these organizations have been most active. So things like uh, stymieing Medicaid expansion, stymieing increases in the minimum wage, passing um, charters or, or, or school or voucher 
provisions and rolling back environmental protections, for instance. And all of these tend to be opposed by majorities, in some cases, even majorities of Republican voters. And so the nationalization of state politics means that these organizations can push policymakers at the state level to pass these unpopular policies without receiving backlash from voters, even Republican voters who are paying attention to these more national issues. The second way I think that the Troika intersects with nationalization is that they themselves are contributing to trends in nationalization by standardizing the package of policies that conservative lawmakers pursue at the state level. Now, more than in previous years, if you get a conservative state government, they're going to try and do a relatively similar set of things, cutting back union rights, cutting taxes, especially on wealthy individuals, although we can talk, and we have talked about how they're more or less successful at that, rolling back efforts to address climate change and the environment, and making it harder to implement labor market standards. And those are ideas that are coming from groups like ALEC, the State Policy Network, and Americans for Prosperity. So I, I guess I, I have a somewhat different view of their, I certainly agree that they are trying to and, and benefiting from, from nationalization and that conservatives in general have benefited from nationalization com, compared to liberals. Um, but I guess I don't agree that, that state policymaking has nationalized uh, quite, as, quite as much as, as you uh, do. Um, a big part of Red State Blues is that I um, reviewed these kind of long-term state-specific policy history books, um, and then I interviewed uh, state legislative uh, reporters about major conflicts in their areas. And the big thing that jumped out is just that a lot of state legislative time is spent on the budget and budget-related matters, and they have all kinds of state-specific components, um, and they often require a lot of individual state expertise, and yet they keep going back to these debates over and over, um, often having the same kind of budgetary conflict over, you know, 10 or 15 years. Um, related to the education budget, the roads budget, taxes, etc. And in those conversations, um, I think conservatives would argue that they that they usually in the end lose uh, those those kinds of big disputes. But I think for our purposes, I guess the, the the question is, you know, to what extent have they succeeded in kind of nationalizing the debate, or are you just looking at the policies um, that are kind of most easy to track across states? And I'm also looking at those, um, and we're kind of missing that the a lot of state policy conflict is still about what to regulate, what to spend money on, um, and the size of the pie. And and in those disputes, conservatives aren't winning. Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I really appreciate the way that you draw on these sort of qualitative policy histories um, in order to suss out from people who are close to the ground, talking to these actors day in and day out, um, what are the sources of policy change? I, I think it's a, a tactic that more political scientists should should use. That said, I do think there is compelling um, and, and a growing quantitative base of evidence that states are uh, increasingly becoming nationalized in this way. I mean, we, you mentioned the work of Jake Grumbach, and he has a nice new paper looking at who states learn from. That is to say, when one state passes a policy that seems to work, you know, who learns from that policy? If we were in a pure laboratories of democracy world, we might expect that all states would look at the success of one state's policy and decide to enact that going forward. But what he shows nicely is that increasingly over time is Republican states that are learning from Republican states and, and um, diffusing only across 
similar Republican states and similar on on the left. And so I think that shows in a more systematic way that what we're seeing is uh, a polarization in policy diffusion that is consistent with a story of uh, of nationalization um, through these organizations like Alec on the right, for instance. Um, and you know, you mentioned or questioned whether it's it's valuable to be thinking about a subset of policies like we both do in our in our books. But I think to some extent, it makes sense to focus on the policies that have the most substantive economic and social impact on citizens in these particular states. Um, you know, I think there's some merit to taking a broader look, but you want to be careful not to put excessive weight on policies that have a relatively smaller impact on the population than, say, expanding Medicaid that, um, that has big implications for, say, low-income citizens in the state. I agree we should focus, but I think I'm more worried that what we focus on is those things that are easy to count across states uh, rather rather than uh, those things that, that have the most impact. And I was just struck by this difference where, you know, you mentioned this long-running policy diffusion literature that we have that looks at these things we can easily count and where they show up. And, and you're right that the, the trends there are that we were passing kind of mostly liberal things, but on a bipartisan basis for a long time. And now we're passing conservative things and conservative states states and liberal things in liberal states. So that is a nationalization, but I was struck by the difference between that and these kind of individual state histories where you occasionally hear about a policy that was passed in other states, but the overwhelming focus seems to be these state-specific challenges about the budget and the, the sort of overall structure of, of government. And maybe they just focus on that just because that's that's where the, the legislatures get get hung up the most, but but I don't think it's because it it lacks uh, policy impact. I think the the, the spending patterns have a quite quite a bit of uh, policy impact. It's, they're just sort of easier or less easy to compare across uh, states. That's true. But when I think about what are the major spending initiatives when it comes to say social policy in the states in recent years, and I think Medicaid would certainly be one of them, and state earned income tax credits would be another. And both of those are areas where cross state networks on the left, in particular, played a really important role in convincing states to take action. You know, the story of state earned income tax credits is one that I, uh, I visit in state capture. And I talk about the role of a network of left-leaning think tanks across the states that are affiliated with two DC think tanks, the Economic Policy Institute and the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And they've played a really important role in um, coordinating efforts to pass these uh, state earned income tax credits and increase their generosity over time. Now, often, to your point, they would use very state-specific strategies for trying to get those policies passed. So, for instance, you know, trying to build business allies where it was possible based on the state's economy or making appeals that were idiosyncratic based on the relationships that they had with Republican lawmakers in some states. But the agenda and the ideas and the evidence base were coming from a national source through a national network. What do you make of the sort of nationwide trends that that aren't attributable to, to partisanship? So uh, across all states, we sort of pursued a tough on crime, mass incarceration policy for decades. And uh, across almost all states, we're at least starting to reverse uh, those trends. Uh, across the states nationally, we had a, a anti-gay rights uh, policy trend, and then we reversed in response to public opinion. Um, same with marijuana legislation. Uh, and and then the opposite way with with tobacco, where we were open and then we were closed nationwide. So I guess to, to what how should we weigh those kinds of trends? You know, if you took a longer term perspective, you'd say.
say, you know, the biggest changes in the states were in mental health, where we used to use state hospitals, and they were huge parts of state budgets. And then we went toward a more uh, local and distributed model across states. So I guess, how should we consider those kinds of national trends where we all thought the same thing, or at least acted the same way uh, against these partisan trends that we're both uncovering. Steve Tellis and Dave Dagan have a, a great book on the sort of about face in the conservative movement on criminal justice reform, showing how many ideological conservative activists and donors you know, came to see criminal justice reform and de-escalation of this mass incarceration crisis as a key priority. And there again, cross-state networks played a really important role, including ALEC, but also the Pew Network on, on the state. And so they, they describe how criminal justice reformers work through both of those organizations to sort of seed ideas and build ties to lawmakers in a variety of states. Yeah, I see both of those as, as examples of the, the continuing necessity of bipartisan uh, and, and cross-ideological coalitions, um, despite uh, some of these trends that, you know, we, we look at the, the partisan priorities. Um, but if we look at actual policy trends and policy passage, we often see still uh, quite a few that, that had initial support from, from both uh, parties or both uh, ideological uh, factions. We haven't yet talked as much about the institutional features of the states. Um, so you mentioned uh, that re- Republicans are conservative. The conservative movement had the most success in these places that didn't have professionalized legislatures, that had term limits, where there were sort of less resources on the ground. So so why is that? What are the policy lessons for that? And I guess I'll add in my take, which is that that's true, but the, the overtime change is toward more professionalization of state legislatures. And so by the time Republic, Republicans got there, there were fewer legislatures of that type. So I am uh, 100% in agreement that the trend over time has been towards more professionalization, although there have been a number of proposals, sometimes successful, to deprofessionalize legislatures. Obviously, there were you know, two big moves towards term limits, which I think deprofessionalized uh, legislatures in the 90s and 2000s. And then you've also seen proposals to shift from more professionalized legislatures to part-time legislatures, including, of course, in in Michigan uh, most recently. But I would add to that that even in the current climate, it's still really hard to be a lawmaker in many of these states, including in states that are considered to be semi-professionalized legislatures. You know, in the interviews that I conducted, for the book, I was just struck time and time again how even in states that gave lawmakers, say, one staffer or even two staffers, it's just hard to have the bandwidth you need in order to do all that is expected of you, to engage in constituent service, to be reaching out to key groups and actors in your home district, to be communicating with the other folks in your caucus or conference, um, to be coming up with bill ideas, to be prepared for oversight of government agencies, and to be fundraising and preparing for the next election campaign. And so I think that there's still uh, a huge need for greater policy resources in the majority of, of states. And I think if we were to build up that sort of internal policy capacity by giving states um, more resources to hire full-time staffers, by paying lawmakers more so that they wouldn't have to have second and third jobs in order to serve in the legislature, and increasing the length of legislative sessions, we would see a, a reduced reliance on outside groups that, uh, that sort of fill in that gap, like ALEC, but also other organizations. 
So we talked about nationalization, but we also have a, a nationalization of backlash. So the big Republican gains in the states came in 1994 and 2010, and to some extent 2014. And the biggest opportunity for Democrats, of course, came under under Trump in, in 2018. So I guess address the broader issue that it's hard to win at the federal government and at the states at the same time, and then maybe the, the more pressing concern of, uh, you know, what, what are Democrats likely to, to achieve with their increasing power. It seems to me the six, if you count New York states that move toward full democratic control are, are doing quite a bit, but, but I want to hear your view. Yeah. I mean, I think this gets at a key argument I make in the book, which is that immediate election success matters, obviously, in creating political opportunities to pass legislation. But it really matters if you've invested in the decades of organization building so that you have the groups and ideas and agendas and activists ready to go when you gain power. Uh, So it obviously mattered that Republicans made outsized gains in state control in 2010 and 2014 in particular, but they were armed with an agenda that had been developed over many years prior to that, there were activists on the ground in many of these states um, ready to push that agenda, and they had the intellectual case built up for many of those policies. And so while I think Democrats have made some important gains at the state level and may be poised to, to make further gains, it's an open question whether they'll have that organizational capacity to help them move a coherent agenda that can build long-term power um, across the states. In particular, I, I think about the ways in which Democrats have struggled to prioritize the sort of things that they should be doing when they gain power. What's so notable about the conservative organizations that I study in state capture is that they have a very clear process of agenda setting. You lead with policies that build long-term power, like cutting back union rights, for instance, whereas I don't think there's as much agreement on the Democratic side about what you, you should do first. And part of this, I think, is due to the fragmentation of interest groups on the left uh, around very distinct policy communities, something that that you've written about compellingly in your previous work. You know, when a Democratic governor and legislature come to power, they're facing demands from environmental groups to address climate change, LGBT groups to address LGBT discrimination and uh, access to health care, unions who are pushing for increases in the minimum wage and greater union rights, um, and uh, of course, reproductive rights activists who are pushing for greater access to contraception and protections against reproductive rights. What should they prioritize? You know, it's not really clear. And oftentimes politicians feel as though um, it's impossible to satisfy all of these different constituencies. Yeah, I certainly agree with that, but I it also often leads to just a bigger agenda and more items passed. <laughs> um, and I think you know sometimes we don't we don't notice as many because there there may be not these kind of nationwide issues. But you know, in these states that Democrats just gained control, you know, New Mexico is seeing more than a ten percent rise in the state budget. There are taxes passed. There are social issue changes. Um, so I guess do you do you think there's a sort of a limit? to to the potential democratic successes or do you think they'll they'll just continue to kind of tick down the lists and and try to satisfy each constituency with with more incremental policies looking over the longer term you know i do think that there is a lack of counterweight to both alec and americans for prosperity on the left that may limit the sort of gains that they can make at the state level and the sort of policy wins that they can end up pursuing because they aren't 
you know, they, they don't have the same sort of grassroots um, pressure from outside groups, nor the sort of legislative coordination that groups like Alec on the right provide. And so I think it's an open question whether or not Democrats and progressives in particular will be able to build their countervailing organizations. Yeah, I would just add that that liberals have some some advantages in in state policymaking uh, as well. One that we've talked about a lot is that their their ideas are usually more popular than the the conservative ones, and so they they face at least less sort of public backlash. And they also tend to have the support of of local interest groups in kind of advancing uh, their their incremental reforms. When those things aren't true, they have they have just as much trouble as Republicans. So when it comes to broad scale changes. Uh, like you know, having statewide health care, they have not succeeded in in any state or uh, Green New Deal style huge uh, public in- investments or or changes to the uh, environmental regulation of their states. They they also have not necessarily succeeded in achieving. Um, but I guess I would argue that's in large part because they they face some of the same constraints that that Republicans do, and they try to make these these large scale changes. The local interest groups are against them, and their ideas become less popular popular as they're discussed. I would agree with that. And I would I would definitely underscore the importance of building local interest group allies as progressives are trying to move this policy. And you know, by highlighting the role of these cross-state networks, I don't want to underplay the role of these in-state actors and interest groups by any means. Um, you know, even in the very contentious nationalized debates that I talk about in state capture, like for instance, battles over Medicaid expansion, I, I show in the book that that pro-expansion forces were most successful when they could Marshall support from in-state healthcare providers um, and uh, and other business constituencies. You know, for instance, in some states, the state chambers of commerce came out in favor of expansion, and that pushed in-state Republicans in many cases into endorsing and supporting expansion. So maybe to, to end, maybe you could make uh, the case for focusing on the states as opposed to the, the national level uh, overall, and then maybe focusing on kind of the organizational and policy infrastructure as opposed to, to just election results. Absolutely. I think the states are important to study in their own right, given that they are uh, places where important social and economic and political changes happen that can affect uh, people all over the country. It's oftentimes the states and and uh, also the localities that are passing policies that are felt most immediately in people's day-to-day lives. But they're also important if you want to understand national politics as well. And so I would say, even if you're just interested in national politics, national politics are shaped by the states. We're a political federation where the states have considerable authority to push back on the federal government as we're seeing uh, in these democratically controlled states. And what happens inside of states has implications for national politics. So when states change rules about who can vote, who can participate, how powerful interest groups are within particular states, those all have um, sort of trickle-up effects on the uh, on the federal government and on national politics. And obviously, the states can play an important role in either supporting initiatives that are passed at the federal level or undermining them, as as has come out in this discussion around the Affordable Care Act and and environmental policy. States can, have been going in both of these directions over time. Thinking about the organizational side of American politics, I I hope state capture can spur greater interest and uh, and attention to 
political organizations. Um, just as much as we focus on individual level political behavior and political science, I think it's important to focus on organizations because they can marshal resources, set agendas, and adopt a longer term perspective that can structure politics in, in really meaningful ways. Um, it's notable, I would say, that the organizations that I study in state capture, you know, two out of three of them don't focus on elections. They focus on policy and they are dealing with politicians after elections happen. And so I think that this tells us that we need more attention ourselves as scholars to political organizations and, and also to the policymaking process rather than just elections. Yeah, and I think a point of similarity in our, our books is that you can't just expect kind of an election result to, to speak for itself and be translated into policy um, where the Republicans did have success. It was where they had this big organizational infrastructure and where they were less up against an existing kind of state legislative uh, bureaucracy. That, that was able to kind of keep things as, as they were. So anything we didn't get to that you wanted to mention or any new uh, project you want to plug before we go? I think we've covered most everything. I would just say that perhaps, uh, you know, touching on this idea of the limits of the conservative takeover of the states, my next set of projects are focused on counter mobilization to conservatives from the labor movement and trying to understand what's been happening with unions um, and other labor organizations that are not just traditional unions, both how they're organizing and how they they hope to reshape policy in order to revive the labor movement in the United States. Well, we'll look forward to that. So thanks, uh, Alex Hertel-Fernandez, for joining me. And remember that the science of politics is available biweekly from the Niskanen Center. And I'm your host, Matt Grossman. So please check out State Capture and Red State Blues and then listen in next time. Mm-hmm.